beautiful people. It's your girl E and this is The Call where we hear from wildly inspiring and dynamic women about their journey to answer their life's calling. I hope you're doing well and living your best life. It is late August and I really don't know where the summer went (laughs) and I'm not ready for it to be over. Um, But that happens. It happens every year because things change. Seasons change. And I was thinking a lot this week about change. I actually found out that a project that I've been working on for a really long time got pushed back a couple months. And I had this visceral reaction. I kind of lost it. I flipped out. I was like angry and crying and emotional. And Allende, who I don't talk about him much on the show, but he's my husband, my lifetime bae, if you didn't know. He was like, E, chill. Like, what's going on? Why are you so upset? Why are you having this reaction? It's just a couple months. And I realized that, yes, some of it was just my own frustration or disappointment or, you know, whatever. But a lot of it was because I'd actually told a bunch of people about this thing and I was embarrassed that it was changing now. You know, I don't really put my business out there like that. I come from the Lil Wayne school of thought where real G's move in silence like lasagna. I prefer to keep stuff quiet. But when you do put yourself out there with what you're doing or what your goals are, something you believe to be true, what happens when that changes? It can be really, really unsettling. And this week's guest can tell you all about that. I'm talking about none other than Glennon Doyle. She's the author of two New York Times bestselling books. In fact, a number one New York Times bestselling book, Love Warrior, along with her first book, Carry On Warrior. She's also the founder of the nonprofit Together Rising, which has raised over $14 million for people in crisis. And Glennon has done a lot of changing in public. I don't want to give too much away if you don't already know her story, but let's just say she wrote an entire book about saving her marriage, and then right before the book came out, a lot changed. (laughs) A whole lot. But that's not it. Between the transformation of her personal life and the evolution of her brand, you know, she started off talking mostly about parenting and marriage. She kind of burst onto the scene as a mommy blogger. And now she talks just as much about philanthropy and race and politics. She is the perfect example of what it looks like to change in public and live your truth out loud and not be afraid for that to look kind of messy. So in this interview, we talk about that. We talk about fighting the idea of perfection or Actually, more accurately, redefining what perfection means. I love what she says about that. We talk about living on your own island of happiness and not letting other people float onto it if they aren't happy too. (laughs) It's really, really good. So this is an inspiring conversation. You're going to want to take notes, buckle up, and get ready for the ride that is the brilliant and beautiful Glennon Doyle on the call. So, Glennon, we're just going to talk about life. Great. And your stuff and all the things. I love it. It's my favorite thing to do. <laughs> well, Glennon. Just talking. Yes, I love it, too. Thank you for being on the call. Thank you for asking me. Um, so, I was I was just telling you before we started rolling that I came across your work years ago with your first book, Carry On Warrior. Um, and I kind of knew of you as a mommy blogger, mm-hmm. right? Which I know is just such a, a simple title, and you're so much more than that. But that was like in the public how I knew of you. Mm-hmm. And I'm not a mommy um, yet. So I, I was like, I don't know. I don't know what the relevance is going to be to my life. But I picked up the book um, literally in the bookstore, which is like not how people buy books anymore. Right. But <laughs> I picked it up and was flipping through. 
And there were two things. One, I saw you talking about your sister, and everyone who listens to the show knows that I'm obsessed with my mm-hmm. sister. And I said, okay, this is a kindred spirit. <laughs> and then the second was honestly how you started the book. On the very first page, you're, you start talking about how people see you and assume that life is perfect. Or I think the phrase you used was pulled together. Mm-hmm. And you, you said this funny thing. You're like, if you're thin and smile a lot and wear trendy jeans, then people just assume everything is perfect. Mm-hmm. And social media contributes to that. Mm-hmm. But I realized then, and then as I continue to read the book and dig more into your work, that a lot of what you do is kind of take off that veneer and say, no, no, life, life isn't perfect and I'm not perfect. Mm-hmm. What was your compulsion to do that? Why did you want to share? Because nobody's life is perfect, and yet most people aren't walking around exposing all the imperfections. What made you want to do that? Well, survival. I mean, I got sober when I was 25, when I found out I was pregnant with my first baby. And I'd been um, lost at addiction for maybe 15 years at that point, food addiction and alcohol addiction. Mm -hmm. Um, And I didn't know, I didn't know how to, I wanted to become a mother. I knew that. Um, but I didn't even know how to be a person, mm-hmm. you know, I, um, was so sick and broken and lost. And the day that I found out that I was pregnant, my sister came and literally picked me up off of the bathroom floor <laughs> holding the pregnancy test Wow! and took me to my first um, recovery meeting. Mm-hmm. And I just remember sitting in that meeting and listening to these people's stories and fig- it, it was like they were the first honest people I'd ever sat with. You know, mm. they were actually telling the truth of their insides instead of pretending that everything was perfect. That's just how I learned to survive is just to tell the truth, you know, um, because I figured out that, oh, it's not like the pain of life. It's not the pain of being human that is taking me out of the game. It's the shame mm. on top of the pain. And the guilt. And yeah. Yeah. If I don't have to pretend that things are perfect, I can. And then it started to feel so frustrating to me that the only place we were allowed to be this honest was in a basement one hour a week. Right? Like yeah, how right. weird is that? And and the funny thing is is that lots of the meetings were in churches. And I remember thinking, I'm not even allowed to be honest upstairs at church. Ooh. I gotta come down to the basement to be honest. Mm-hmm. Up there I still have to smile and pretend that everything's perfect. Yeah. And I think I've been playing with this idea of outward shininess and perfection compared to inward Human humanity. I don't even call it a mess anymore. I think it's just being human. Mm-hmm. Because when I was in high school, I had this experience that really kind of crystallized it all for me. So I was severely bulimic in high school and also really popular. Like mm. I was um, so severely bulimic that when I was a senior in high school, I was hospitalized and there weren't a lot of eating disorder clinics back then, so I was just put in a mental hospital. Wow. And it was like kind of a little separate part of it, but it was a mental hospital. And so I was there for a while. I got pulled out of school, put in a mental hospital, and then – and I actually loved it there. <laughs> so I did. <laughs> That's amazing. It was like the <laughs> – it was um, – I guess the first experience I had that was kind of equivalent to that recovery meeting. Uh, it was like right. when you were there, it was like, oh, okay. Like, we don't have to pretend. Yeah. Clearly the jig is up. Right. <laughs> right. We would not have landed our asses here. Something, <laughs> if everything's every- going on. <laughs> right. Right. Um, and then when I got released from the hospital, it was the next week and I, I had been, I don't know, something like, I, I was like the student body secretary and homecoming court and all of that. So I remember, oh, and I was voted leading leader 
for uh, my school. Leader? Right, my superlative was best wow. leader. Wow. And I just remember thinking, I was sitting on a car with my sash, you know, leading leader in high school. They have those like homecoming parades, uh-huh. waving to the all the people. And I remember th- having that moment and thinking, I just got out of the mental hospital. <laughs> I literally like it's just not funny, got out. but it is it, because it's so it, it's so jarring the difference between what people see and want you to project in the world and what could actually be happening. Yes, and yeah. how it doesn't matter if you it doesn't matter if you were just in the mental hospital. It doesn't matter if you're very sick. It doesn't matter if in your inner life all these things are going on. If you are wearing the right jeans, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. if you have the right smile on your face, mm-hmm. if you you can be you too can be named leading leader. <laughs> Yeah. So I just think it's fascinating. And I don't think of it as either or anymore. I don't mm-hmm. think of it as like I'm a failure on the inside and a shiny success on the outside. I think of it as this is just what it is to be human. That's what I was going to ask you because sometimes, right, so a lot of us either are striving for the veneer of perfection, mm-hmm. which we know is unhealthy and unsustainable and doesn't help not only yourself but other people. There's that extreme. But I've also found that I vacillate between that and then this weird kind of overly self-deprecating, mm-hmm. right? So I don't want you to think I'm perfect, so I'm going to tell you that I'm a mess. And, and actually, right now I'm okay. Like there's a period, <laughs> right? You know what I mean? Like we all kind of go back and forth. Mm-hmm. Um, but I found myself sometimes when someone would compliment me or praise an accomplishment or something that was real, I would say, oh, no. I mean, I know it looks good, but no. Mm-hmm. I'm a mess. I'm a mess. And it was my husband and my sister. They're like, well, girl, you're not that bad. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you're, you're all right. Like, don't do not do don't overdo the, the authenticity, mm-hmm. air quotes. Um, so how do you find that balance between showing up in the world as you really are, but not kind of trying to shrink it or make it worse than it actually is? Okay. So I'm obsessed that you just said that. I'm just writing about that concept right oh, now. Oh, good. Okay. So I'm going to try. This will be the first time I'm trying to put it into Spoken words. Okay. So it might not work perfectly, but okay. So I think there's a few different ways to think about what it is to be a human. And I think like level one is you have this idea in your head of what a perfect woman looks like, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And basically she's like really sh- – for me, everyone has a different one. For me, she was like really um, shiny and not uh, anxious all the time and didn't get depressed and she had like really great relationships that were all super full and she didn't like stress about money and she was never like bloated or, you know, <laughs> oily or whatever, like just awkward. You right. know, she just didn't have that. And so for a while, my level one thinking is I'm going to try to be that. Mm-hmm. I'm going to try to be that idea, that ghost, that this haunting I have of this perfect woman. Mm-hmm. By the way, I've never met her. Right. No. Right? no I can't think of her. Right. Like she doesn't exist except in two-dimensional Instagram posts. I've never met her in real life. But I believe she exists mm-hmm. and I'm haunted by her. So so my 20s and my early 30s, I was just trying to become her. I was mm-hmm. just imitating her. Okay, so I wasn't like being fully human. I was imitating this ghost of a perfect woman. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's how we all end up feeling fake and inauthentic and like we're acting because we're not actually being human. We're impersonating this ghost of a right. perfect woman. Then that becomes so exhausting and makes us feel so lost that we get pissed off. Okay? <laughs> yeah. And so at some point, it's usually like for me it was like when when I was trying to be so perfect for so long and I was so tired and my entire family fell apart anyway and my entire like it all got screwed up anyway. Mm-hmm. And I just thought I hate this ghost. 
I hate this perfect woman. I'm not going to try to be her anymore. And so basically you just give the, the finger to that woman, right? So you start saying things like, I know there's a perfect woman, but I'm not her, and I am embracing my imperfection, Mm -hmm. right? I'm embracing my imperfection. I am a hot mess, and I love it. You hear all those people say, you know, they're celebrating their rebellion against this perfect woman. Right. But what that proves is that you still believe in the ghost, Mm -hmm. right? Whether you are chasing perfection or you're rebelling against perfection, you're still living in reaction to this fake ghost right. that this doesn't ideal. exist. Mm-hmm. So I feel like level three thinking is when you think about the word perfect, what does it mean? Or when you think about what it means is something performs the way it was designed to perform. Mm-hmm. Okay. So when I think about what it is to be human, if I think about my own experience, the experience of every honest woman I've ever spoken to mm-hmm. and the experience of every human that I've ever studied in history, humanity, humans are designed to make mistakes. We're designed to hurt people and be hurt by people. Mm -hmm. We're designed to be oily and bloated and sweaty and awkward. Mm -hmm. If we're um, we're designed to betray people and be betrayed, we're we're designed to fail and try again. We're designed to screw up our kids and then (laughs) in different ways that our parents screwed us up though, you know? Like we're designed to do all these things. So if you are doing, if you are having that kind of messy experience, you are um, functioning exactly as a human was designed to function, mm-hmm. which means that we just we we can we don't have to embrace imperfection anymore. We can embrace perfection. I am making messes quite often, which means I am um, functioning uh, uh, perfectly human. Mm-hmm. Right. I love that. So there's no more of this living in rebellion. You know, giving the finger. I'm just not haunted by the ghost mm-hmm. of a perfect woman anymore. You know, I think in our 40s, we figure out, oh, that doesn't exist. Right? So we're not a mess. And we're not, I don't even believe in the word imperfection anymore. Mm. I don't. I don't. I think that, you know, I have this, um, in Carry On Warrior, that book you just said, I have this stupid ass line I wrote. <laughs> and somebody called it me on it in an, in an interview recently. It said, I was born broken. With an extra dose of sensitivity. Uh-huh. I've actually seen you. You said that a couple times. I was born even. broken. Yep. Yep. What, what? What? Like broken means once again, like something that is broken means that it's not functioning the way it was designed to function. Right. But I thought I was broken because I felt pain a lot. Right. Mm-hmm. And because I felt left out a lot. And because uh, my relationships were really hard and I found parenting hard and I thought marriage was kind of hard and like I am socially awkward. And uh, so I thought I was broken. But those things are all just perfectly human. They're perfectly human. And they also speak to, I think, if anything is broken, the social construct that we live in, Mm -hmm. right, that the way the world is functioning, we are actually responding normally to all the chaos around us. We are responding to the hatred that's in the world. We are responding to, literally, we are operating as we are designed to operate in a system that operates like this, right? Oh, Erica, absolutely. Women will come to me in in speaking at my events now, and they'll raise their hand and they'll say, Glennon, I'm so angry. Like, what's wrong with me? (laughs) And I, over and over again, I look at them and say, there's only two types of women I respect in the world right now. Angry ones or ones who are in an active coma. 
<laughs> right. 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 If you're not angry, you better just have been waking up from like a Rip <laughs> Van it. Winkle long sleep. Right. right. Like you're angry not because there's something wrong with you, but because there's something wrong. Yes. In the world that you like embrace that anger. We need more angry women. Like, right. Your anger is is pointing you towards the thing in the world that you are meant to change. Right, and I think so often we we look inward, and it's be- self reflection is beautiful, and personal growth is beautiful. But so much of what we've been trying to change about ourselves really <laughs> is the world around us, right? Is the systems and the structures and capitalism and all of these things that are making us feel the way we feel, and those feelings are. They're triggers Mm -hmm. to change other things outside of us. Exactly. And I'm kind of over women self-reflecting so much. Like, you know, don't go to therapy anymore. Go to a march. (laughs) Or go to both. Right. Go to both. Right, right. Go Go to like me. Go to therapy and then go to the march and then go back to therapy. But at least make sure you're showing up in the world. Yeah. You know, if I think that people who are and it took me so long to to figure this out. I think it's why I drank and overate for so long. You know, I had all these feelings and I thought that they were meant that there was something wrong with me, mm-hmm. you know. But I think that if you are feeling, you know, we say over and over again to our, you're not a mess. You're just a feeling person in a very messy world. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the some some rabbi that said if you're if you're well adjusted in this world, that's no that's badge of honor. Right. Right. <laughs> right. If you're well adjusted and fine in a profoundly unjust um, society, then that means that you have a paying attention problem, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, when people tell me that right now, especially that they are upset a lot or sad a lot or angry a lot, I just say congratulations. That means that you're paying attention, right? That you're still right. human. And the good news is you have you have the ability. If you have that level of awareness, then you can do something about it. Yeah. So what has it looked like? You joked about a line in your first book, right? And you've you've written a, another bestseller, New York Times bestseller since then, Love Warrior. You've um, started a nonprofit, Together Rising, rising. Mm-hmm. Together Rising. So you've done all these things, but you looked back at that line and you're like, oh, God, I can't believe I wrote it. What has it been like to grow in public? Mm-hmm. So it's one thing to tell the truth after something, right? Mm-hmm. Like, okay, I've come through it all. Let me reflect and share the lessons <laughs> and I can connect the dots in a beautiful way. Mm-hmm. It's another thing to have done that, put a story out, and then, okay, actually, wait, now this thing is happening. And, oh, wait, now I'm figuring this out in a way that's different than maybe I told you or I thought it was a year ago. Or what does that look like? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the good news about building your whole art and your platform on, okay, I'm a human being and I will never promise you that I'm going to be perfect and whatever that means and that I will never, I'm just, I I never promise to be anything other than honest Mm -hmm. this whole way through. Like my job is to live out loud, whether or not you believe what I'm doing is right or wrong, right? That's a, that's the good news because you don't ever have to dig yourself out of a hole. (laughs) Right, right. Like I always say, if anyone ever did an expose on me, they would have no material because that's (laughs) my job is to expose myself. Um, but I mean, yeah, it's been interesting. So I went from being a Christian mommy blogger is what they called me to um, writing Love Warrior, which was about the redemption of my marriage. Mm-hmm. So um, I found out that my husband was unfaithful throughout my marriage um, and then wrote Love Warrior based on our recovery from that. Um, 
and how we stayed together and and then and then <laughs> and then here's a twist for right. those of you who don't know as my kids say plot twist <laughs> that's what they call this so then what happened is um i thought that we were we spent years just really trying to forgive each other you and your you husband know, just trying to forgive right. each other yeah my mm-hmm. ex-husband and i um, and I thought that that we were doing that work so that we could live our happily ever after, right? That's what I thought was the right thing to do at that time. Um, but it turned out that we were doing all of that so that we could say goodbye to each other with no anger. So what happened, Erica, is that um, a few months before Love Warrior released, okay, so Love Warrior was supposed to be this big, huge book. Oprah had just picked it for her book club. Um, this was going to be the big this is how you save your marriage memoir, right? Uh-huh. And I never said that, by the way. That's just how they were spinning it. Okay. Yep. And then a few months before it came out, I fell in love with a woman named Abby Wambach, and I left my husband. And so you can imagine that all of the people who were involved with my career were concerned. <laughs> to put it mildly. <laughs> concerned. Yes. yes. So there was a lot of um there was a lot of, oh please don't just just don't say a word about this until the tour is over. Mm-hmm. Just don't say a word about this until um you know the book has sold until just just keep it private for a while. And I did keep the part about Abby and me private for a while because that was um just so fresh and new and precious and I didn't want the world involved but I did um, insist on releasing the information to all of my readers and to the world before the book came out that I was getting divorced Mm -hmm. and the reason for that is that I just didn't feel like I could be a person who bases their entire art and career on truth telling (laughs) I mean I remember Someone saying, one of my agents saying, okay, you can come out and say you're getting divorced before Love Warrior releases, but it will be the equivalent of committing career suicide. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, well, I think what I've learned is that I would 10 times out of 10 rather commit career suicide than soul suicide, Mm -hmm. which is what I would be doing. I would just be selling everything that I've ever said I believed in out. And I also know that people are smarter and wiser and better than we give them credit for. Mm-hmm. Right? People um, respect truth and they know that there's gray and nuance in life. And I um, came out with that news. It did not affect Love Warrior. Well, clearly. No, it did <laughs> not. Amazing well. how the truth just kind of handles its own business, right? Mm. Um, and then the amazing thing is that a few months later, I. Um, got on my Facebook, I got on my Instagram, and very carefully planned out, but I told the world that I was in love with Abby. Um, and Erica, the crazy thing is that this is like, I largely based my my um, community on faith-based people, right? This yep. is like a Christian community. Now, it was a Christian community that I had built for a decade that had always been fiercely built on inclusion and justice and love. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, we laugh and say, my kids have been to more gay pride parades than Abby ever had. And she's like the gayest <laughs> gay that ever gayed, right? right. So, so, so everyone in my family and my life um, and my community and my work knew that um, what I stood for. Right. They knew that this wasn't a departure from our, my values, right. right? That it was just an extension of it, that it was just freedom and truth and love. 
Um, so it was so amazing because, you know, the night before I announced the news, my little team, one of the last things people said to me was, it will eventually be okay. But just get ready because tomorrow is going to be a bloodbath. Yeah. And I never forget that word, bloodbath. I was like, oh, God. And oh, my God, the reaction from my community was so freaking beautiful. Mm. There were thousands. There still are. And I have the whole thing saved. But thousands and thousands of comments. And they were so beautiful and so loving and so inclusive and so understanding. And even the people who were like, what the hell did you just – even those people were like, okay, I don't get this. But I'm here for it. I'm right. gonna I'm gonna stay with you through this. And well, it's also interesting that you said the reaction from your community, mm-hmm. and you're not equating your community with the entire world. No, but it's important to know then who to pay attention to. Yeah, right. I'm accountable to this group of people, however large or small for some people it may be, that I have committed to, that I know love me that I know understand me. And I think that's an important distinction because when we make changes or we do things and we're afraid of the reaction, we're usually not thinking only of our community. We're thinking Mm -hmm. about the haters. Mm -hmm. We're thinking about the people who you know won't understand you. Mm -hmm. And how can I, how can I say it in a way that maybe those people will? And it's like, well, no, I'm worried about my community. They're okay, the people. I love that so much. I've actually, that is exactly right. I never thought about it exactly that way, <laughs> but that is exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, because I mean, oh, of course the world had its opinions about the situation. Right. But what I really cared about were these people. And it's interesting you said that because like, we used to think about that in terms of our family too. Like when we started telling people in our immediate circle that Abby and I were in love and that we were going to do this thing together. People in our small circle had feelings mm-hmm. about it. that, And we, we struggled with that a little bit in the beginning. Abby and I used to say, okay, we are on an island. We'd say this to each other each day. like, We are on an island, and on our island is love and each other and our children. Mm-hmm. And the island is surrounded by a moat, and the moat is filled with alligators. And we will let down the drawbridge only for people who are – Um, willing to just completely celebrate and love us and don't bring fear to us, right? Mm -hmm. So we were tested with that a lot because, you know, even my parents at first, my parents and I are extremely close, like probably too close, right? (laughs) (laughs) Like talk four times a day. I get it. Right. I know you do. Yep. And they were scared. Right. And they were scared um, first of all, because they'd already been through a hell of a lot with me. You know, they finally (laughs) thought we were finally settled. Right. Um, and I think they were scared, I think, for us. And I think parents fear sometimes, you know, it, we feel like they're scared of us, but they're really scared for us. They were scared that the world was going to act a certain way, and they were scared that the world wasn't going to accept us, and that we were going to have so much pain. But their fear that the world would bring us pain was causing them to bring us pain. Mm-hmm. Right? Because we didn't care about the world. We just cared about them. Right. And so we had to make a conscious decision of, it, it, it was hard, but I remember saying to my mom, like, you can't come here. Oh, wow. You ca- I hear the fear in your voice, and you cannot come to our home mm. because my children aren't afraid, right? But they look at you, and they love you, and if you bring fear to our island, they will feel it. Right. So, you know, we love you, and, and we are so excited for when you are ready, but your fear is not our problem. Mm. We are happy and whole for the first time. 
in our lives, right? We found the thing that we were looking for our entire lives. Mm -hmm. And we have a few non-negotiables on this little island. It's only love here. And fear in many ways is the opposite of love. So I hear your fear and I wish you the best with it. Like go do your therapy, right? Go take your time, fix your business, but that's not our business. I love that phrase. Your fear is not my problem. No, no. And it becomes, you know, it's like when I talk to other parents who are dealing with, um, or, or kids who are going through what I what we went through, you know, with the gay thing or, or whatever else. I think we lose our power and our peace when we think that it, it's our job to convince other people right. to love us or to accept us. Right. Right? We just said always no convincing, no loving. Like we are happy and whole here. And we will not spend any of our time running off our island trying to convince you to love us mm-hmm. or trying to convince you not to be afraid for us or trying to convince you that this is okay. So much of our lives are actually spent trying to convince someone, whether it be a partner, whether it be family, whether it be your social media following, whether it be colleagues, trying to convince someone of our worthiness. Mm-hmm. And when you kind of get that, what what I hear when you're saying that is this kind of confidence and ownership of I'm responsible for my wholeness. Mm-hmm. You go figure your stuff out. Yeah, because when you're trying to convince somebody of something or defending yourself, um, what you're saying is you have the power, mm-hmm. right? You're saying well, what Abby and I figured out is, oh, we're grown ass women. We can do, we what, can we do what we want. Look at that. Right? Look at that. You can join us if you want yeah. in this beautiful love, gorgeous life we're having. Or you cannot. Mm-hmm. But like, we're not going to lower the drawbridge so you can come, so we can leave our joy and happiness to try to convince you that we have joy and happiness. We already have it. Right. And right. what happened, Erica, eventually is we lost no one. Because what parents really want to see, what they're saying is, are you okay? Mm-hmm. And you cannot convince anyone else that you're okay. The only way you can convince other people that you're okay is to be okay. Right. If you keep trying to argue with them about how okay you are, in some ways, that proves you're not. I was going to say, you look not okay then. No, you look not okay. <laughs> you, you look, look desperate. Really okay. You look scared. You look like you're making a court case, you know? Yeah. What they have to do is look at your island and say, oh, my God, they look like they look all right. I want to con- come there to get some of what they have, right. not to give them some of what I have. Right? So we ended up, my parents did come and they ended up spending a month in a condo. <laughs> <laughs> not in the house. Nope. Not on the Witnessing island, the island but... from afar. Right. And eventually, I mean, Abby went over to my parents' house um, to ask, you know, to do the traditional, I'm going to ask your daughter to marry me. And my mom started crying and said, I, I have to tell you, I haven't, I haven't seen my daughter this happy since she was 10 years old. Aww. And that's when I became bulimic. So this is this weird full circle thing. Um, but now they're happily on our island. And, oh, good. And so many people are on our island now. Right. Um, and and we, we raise the drawbridge and keep people off all the time also. So let me ask you, so you've gone through kind of all of these changes publicly, mm-hmm. and it's worked out, mm-hmm. right? This idea of telling your truth, telling your story, being honest, um, has actually, quote unquote, paid off. And I don't just mean financially, mm-hmm. right? But I mean, like, with your sense of peace and a fulfilled life and a career. Um, let me get practical for a second, though, yeah. because I ask, I, I talk a lot on the show and actually in my life about telling your story, living your truth. The reality is that doesn't necessarily make a career for most people. Right. When did you figure out that there was a career in this, in in your truth-telling? Okay. 
Well, I love this topic, and I think it's super important because I believe that in this in this moment of um, where so many people are talking about truth telling and vulnerability and putting yourself out there, and I think we're getting it a little bit wrong about what that means as an art or a practice. So I think what people hear is, okay, I'm having a hard time and I'm going through a hard thing. So what these these leaders who are truth tellers are telling me and promising me is that if I just put it all out there. That will somehow be healing, right? And and people will run to my. Everyone will love me, and and it will it will heal. And that is not what mm-hmm. happens in mm-hmm. any way, shape, or form. <laughs> nope. So I see it. You know, people. It's like something happens to them in their life, and they are like actively gushing blood, <laughs> right? They're uh-huh. like in the immediate aftermath right. of a life attack, and they just bleh, put it all out there. Yeah. And then. It's so sad because they think that will be healing and the whole world doesn't lean in. The world goes leans back like yikes. What is that? Yeah. And then that's doubly hurtful because they think, "Wait, you promised if I was vulnerable it would be healing, but people, sh- you know, shrunk away." So what I think is that um, my friend Nadia always says, we do, artists, writers, truth tellers, poets, you know, these types of people, they're actually not gushing vulnerability in the moment, right? Mm -hmm. These are people who write from their scars, not their open wounds, okay? Mm. These are people who find a way to experience life in the moment. They sit with it for a while, right? They sit with the immediate personal pain and they mine it for gold. Like where I'm having this personal experience, if I'm having a personal human experience, that also means that it's universal. Mm-hmm. I don't write a word, not on my blog, not on Instagram, not in a book, certainly, that I haven't asked myself, this is a personal experience. How how does it apply to all of us? Mm-hmm. That's what is the universal art, in it? Right? right? So that's why there's a difference between memoir and a diary. Okay? <laughs> right. You do not put your diary on Facebook. Right. Uh Because what that is, when you put your diary out on Facebook, that's a cry for help. Right. That is not art. Right. The way that I try to use my truth telling is how I wait till it's a service to people, not a cry for help. Mm, Okay. mm -hmm. when I'm when I'm crying for help, that's to my sister, to my wife, to my therapist, to my diary. Mm-hmm. Right. When I've sat with it long enough that I've thought, oh, I, you know, in retrospect, how you can see, oh, that was really about this. And, oh, yeah. you know, right. Yeah. But I can not tell you what, Erica. No, no. I, I was not listening to my husband tell me he'd been cheating on me and thinking, oh, damn, this is going to make a great blog post. It's <laughs> universal. No, I was picking myself off the floor. Right. Raging just for a year. Yeah. Right or longer, and it's interesting. That's it's that's such a good way to talk about it. I just finished writing my first book, Knock on Wood, that's coming out in January. <gasps> it's been such a crazy process, but people are always asking, and I've seen a lot of folks like, "Oh, well, I should write a book. I should write a book. I should write a book." And I'm like, I encourage you, I support you if that is the journey you want to take. But it's not as simple as I'm living life and feeling it and writing it down. No, but the way you just articulated it is perfect. That where the the calling or the gift or the skill comes in is the ability to mine that human experience that many of us, if not all of us, are having for the gems that can help someone. Right. If you're out of the gushing blood part, mm-hmm. you know, and you've made it to that new step, it's like the pain. When you sit with the pain of, of an experience, over time it becomes wisdom. 
right? Mm-hmm. It's 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 a dull pain still sometimes, but if you sit with it for long enough, it becomes wisdom. And when you are ready to turn that wisdom into art, and um and and I think one of the ways you can tell is, you know, I can write about my divorce. I can write about the infidelity. I can write about my addiction, and people can say whatever they want to say. And I've healed enough that it doesn't take me under anymore. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If I had tried to speak about Damn. the infant, I mean, it would have been like walking out with open, fresh wounds, right? Yeah, yeah. So I think that when, when a lot of people say I should write a book, what they mean is I should write a diary. Because mm-hmm. there is a part of writing it all down and getting it all out it's that is essential and, for yeah, healing, yeah. right? But that doesn't mean that that's going to then be a service to everybody that you give it to. So um, I think it just comes with, you know, being still long enough. It's like, you know, when you become a new person almost, it's like an experience. It's like what I read, what your dad said, new life, new life. When you've gotten to the new life, I know you, when you get to the new life (laughs) part, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm this new person. So I am now reflecting on this time and that will serve you where you are. Yeah. And I'm already this new person. Mm Mm-hmm. New life, new mm-hmm. life, right? So, um, yeah, every time somebody says, I'm just going to write it all, I'm going to get it all out, I'm like, whoa, did you go to therapy yet? <laughs> Be careful. <laughs> Be careful. Yeah. So then you've, you've done this. You're kind of this is your practice now of living life, experiencing it, processing it, trying your best to heal from it, and then figuring out what part of that can be a service to others. Mm-hmm. I love that. That's mm-hmm. such a, a beautiful way to talk about it. When in the journey did you realize, okay, I'm talking about my life, I'm talking about other people's lives, going back to what we said in the beginning, but I'm seeing a lot of stuff in the world mm-hmm. that is impacting how we live our lives. And not just that, and it's my place to say something mm-hmm. about it now, right? There's been, there was this, one of my favorite headlines about you was <laughs> Glennon is, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but I'm not paraphrasing the second half. It was Glennon is coming for the white one. <laughs> Like, okay, that's really clear, right? Glenn, when did you decide to come, to come for, for the, the white, white women? women? Okay, I love that. Okay. Um, yeah, when I saw that headline, I was like, wow, okay. Right? It's really wow. direct. Um, so this is how I think I can describe this. I really, I really do think it's been kind of a journey that I can describe in stepping stones, okay? Mm-hmm. So I think what I figured out first is that what I had always thought was my weakness was actually going to become my superpower. So my intense sensitivity that I tried to run from so long mm-hmm. as a kid and cover up with all the drugs and alcohol and food and all that was actually going to be the thing that made me good at what I did. So like the sensitivity that led me into bulimia and alcoholism was going to be the sensitivity that made me a really good artist. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the first um, call – for me, I would say was okay. You got to find a way to stay in the world, right? You got to you got to find a way to stop numbing, stop numbing because, you know, they say about writers like they're like the, the the open nerve of the world. Mm-hmm. Like they go out and try to feel things that other people may not be brave enough to feel all the way, mm-hmm. and see things a little bit slower and more carefully, and then then report back. Right. Mm-hmm. This is what it means to be human. This is what I see in humanity. This is what. So my first call was to feel it all, see it all. Don't numb, don't run and report back. Mm-hmm. That's how I became a writer. OK. So then 
what happens over time when you are actually feeling it all and seeing it all and looking out carefully at the world mm-hmm. and people. I have not found a way to look really carefully <clears throat> and closely at somebody and not in on some level love that person. Mm-hmm. Right. I think that's why, you know, the, the politics of division is so powerful because fear of each other can't handle proximity. Right. Mm-hmm. The closer we get to people, we're like, oh, we see all our similarities. So became an artist, paid close attention. Then I started falling in love with people, with humanity, with the world. And that's how I became a philanthropist. So basically what that meant was that, you know, people started coming to me. I created this community mm-hmm. as a writer, as an artist. Monastery was my blog. Yeah. People would read my words. They would sense that I had a heart, okay? And then they would come to me and ask me for help with things. Mm-hmm. So one day I went to my email and there was a, you know, I'd get a million emails a day of people that needed help. But there was this woman, really this email that got me. She um, was running a, a home for, for uh, unwed teen mothers in Indiana. And she had, this 14-year-old girl had come to her the night before with a baby in her hand. And this woman had a bed and had a room in the house for her. Mm-hmm. But she had to turn her away because of some red tape and money and, you know, government rules and whatever. She's just writing to me saying, I'm heartbroken. I don't know what to do. Mm. Something about that got me. I called her back. I said, I'm going to do it. I, I'm going to give you the money for this girl to come in. How much do you need? And she said, we need $25,000. And I said, well, we need another plan. But- <laughs> Like wow, because that ain't that's gonna be a high hard credit card right um, charge to hide. So let's keep thinking. Well, we needed to delete plan. what I just said. Right, my right. grandiosity, backpedaling. So, um, so anyway, what ended up happening was I remembered. Oh, I'm a writer. So what I can and I have this community of amazing people. So if I care about this, they're going to care about this. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to we we stayed up all night. We wrote this beautiful story about her home and this little girl anonymously and all that. And then we posted it online and we asked everybody else to give us the money, mm-hmm. right? And this is what started the love flash mobs. This is how Together Rising has raised 14 million dollars in the last few years. Just people responding to things that break our hearts, okay? So that's, we started raising money for hurting people, right? That's what philanthropists do. Mm-hmm. Then the needs started to get so out of control, and we were spending all day, every day, just, you know, keeping people's lights on, paying families' bills, helping hurting people. And it got to the point where every night I just started asking myself, why are all these people hurting so much? Yes. What is going wrong? Because I know as an artist, and I will. this is a mountain I'm willing to die on, I know that people are doing the best they can. Mm-hmm. And I don't believe – when people say other things than that, I just know they're not paying attention, mm-hmm. that they're not listening careful to people's stories because I know because I listen carefully and I know that in general people are doing the best they can. And if people are doing the best they can, why are so many people unable to make freaking ends meet? Mm-hmm. Unable. And then I read this quote and it said – you can only pull people out of the river for so long till you look upriver to find out who's pushing them in. My father used to say that. Stop. Mm-hmm. I have said it in almost every speech I've ever given for 10 years. My father used to say that exact same thing. I'm going to get emotional. But yeah. He used to tell the story of someone being at the base of a, a waterfall and catching babies and wondering, okay, you know, and I, I talk about that in comparison to his life, right? His story was he was down there. Catching the babies, pulling them out, right? And that's that's service. That mm-hmm. is a very, very needed thing. 
but it connects to why are they falling and where are they coming from? Mm-hmm. And that was why I went into politics when I first started, when I got mm-hmm. out of school. That because I felt sense. my heart was broken for the people who were down there collecting the babies. It wasn't just broken for the babies. It was broken for the people who were killing themselves mm-hmm. trying to mm-hmm. catch them. That's and I realized we had to do something about the system and the structure. The people pushing them in. The people pushing them in. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And that's when I figured out there's something that bugs the crap out of me about only focusing on pulling the babies out. Mm-hmm. Because in a way, that is exactly what the power structures want. Yes. Right? Yes. If we just keep cleaning up the mess that they are making, then that in some way works to keep the system exactly as it is. Right. Right? So, and and I don't think it's an either or. I think for me, it's an and both. It's just that I will never stop Work It Together Rising. Our team every single day is answering you know, first responders, helping people who have already been pushed in. Mm-hmm. But I sure as hell am also going to be an activist. I'm not just going to be a philanthropist. I'm going to be, I'm going to look up river, figure out why those people who are doing the best they can can't pay their bills right. while 1% of the population has 90% of the wealth. And I'm going to start yelling, showing up, marching to at least shine a light on the people that are pushing. Right into the river. So that is how it happened. You know, I went from an artist paying attention, falling in love to a philanthropist, to an activist. um, And I'm only comfortable, really comfortable when all three are sort of in motion. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. It speaks to who you are, right? Mm -hmm. There's the art, there's the, I see something, I see a need and I want to meet it right now. Mm -hmm. But also I'm looking critically at the bigger picture to Mm -hmm. figure out how do we, how do we fix this whole thing? Yeah. You know? Yeah. So what has your audience response been like? Because I can imagine, I'm thinking back, okay, so beginning, starting off as Christian mommy blogger, to now we're talking about in the post-Trump era, we're getting out here. You're t- I've heard you talk about white supremacy. You've talked about patriarchy, all the, you know, lefty words. Mm-hmm. Has your audience shifted and changed or have they? Well, let me rephrase that. Is it a different set of people now or has mm-hmm. the same set of people themselves shifted and changed? Um, both. I think it's kind of amazing how. My dream is that everybody stays and and changes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, if that's because what we all control right? freak. Yes, <laughs> um, that is my dream. And I don't know. I mean, I go. I'm committed to. I don't go any place anymore without speaking about race. Mm-hmm. Right. So for me, it's just it's painfully obvious that this is the most important thing we can be discussing in this country at this time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so. What I would say is that, you know, if that's a little microcosm of what's going on, I will often be speaking at a church or somewhere where there's 900 people, right? And Mm -hmm. there will be five black women there Mm -hmm. and 895 white women, right? Mm -hmm. And such such interesting things happen. Sometimes I think my entire job is just to ask different questions in different ways. Like um, I told this story recently, but I was at a church. It was right after Martin Luther King Day. We started talking about race, and a white woman stood up, and she quoted Martin Luther King. She said, hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that, right? And so she was kind of saying that in a way that suggested – sometimes people use that quote to, like, shut down race talk. Yep. 
right? Like it's not loving to even talk about race. Yes, most of the time. Right, right. right. (laughs) All the days, right? So so that was interesting. So I said, okay, um, it is – it has just been Martin Luther King Day. Martin Luther King Day. All of we, all of us white people, put out our memes. You know, Martin Luther King memes. That's <laughs> yes. Us. We love us some Martin Luther King Jr. But only that now quote. and now, N- not the ones right. about white moderates. Right, right, right. right. No, no letters from Birmingham jail. <laughs> right. Just that quote. And um, I said, I think that one of the interesting things that I've learned is that I don't think that white people in this country in this moment are who we think we are. Okay, mm. meaning um, this all started for me a few years ago. I was showing my daughter pictures of a of a civil rights march, and to both my daughters and my my youngest daughter said, "Mommy, would we have been marching with those people?" Mm. And my old, I almost said yes. Right, right. This right. is who I believe I am in the world. Right, and my oldest daughter Erica said, "No, we wouldn't have been marching with them. We're not marching now." Ooh, kids are so smart oh, and annoying. Right. <laughs> Annoying. And um, that moment is when I started thinking, I wonder if I am not at all who I think I am, Mm, right? Like, mm -hmm. I wonder if I'm a person who is not marching, who's – like, I wonder if if the best indicator of how I would have shown up in that civil rights era is – how I'm showing up in this civil rights era, right? Yes. So I'm asking myself the wrong questions, right? So when this woman said that – so I think, like – the question is not, do I love Martin Luther King Jr., right? Mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. especially white people, it is very easy to love a dead civil rights activist, mm-hmm. right? Because a dead civil rights activist is no threat anymore to the status quo. So it is not even a good indicator of whether we would have loved Martin Luther King Jr. then mm-hmm. to ask ourselves whether we love him now, right? Right. right. So the, a, better, a better indicator to whether we would have loved Martin Luther King Jr. then is how do we feel about Colin Kaepernick now? right. Right. So we don't right. ask ourselves, like, how do we feel about the freedom writers? <laughs> right, right, right. Of course we love them now. <laughs> Sounds great. We say, like, how do we feel about Black Lives Matter now? Mm-hmm. Right. So just shifting the question for a, for white for my white readers a little bit to kind of try to anchor ourselves into where we are. We think of ourselves as marchers and maybe we're not. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, that feels like. A job for me right now. Yeah, feels like, and and you know what? I never do a, a speech where a few people don't leave. Really, never. I mean, if I am, what I tell myself is, if I am in a large church with eight hundred and ninety-five white women, mm-hmm. and I'm talking about race, and nobody leaves, <laughs> I probably didn't do my job. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good a good metric of success, right? Yeah. And when they get up, I always give them a nice out, like, "Oh, did your husband just call?" Like. <laughs> Babysitter's leaving. Right. Bye. <laughs> but I always think my one of my favorite quotes about church, which probably your dad knew well, is, um, you know, church is where we go. We make sure that the comfortable feel uncomfortable mm-hmm. and that the uncomfortable feel comforted. Mm-hmm. So I think it's okay for people to feel a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah. Right now. Yeah. You call life brutiful, which I yeah. love that phrase, right? A, a little bit of brutal, a little bit beautiful. Mm-hmm. What's brutal and beautiful in your life right now? You know what? I would say that, first of all, raising a teenager mm. is beautiful. And because of my great respect for my family's privacy, <laughs> <laughs> I'll just leave it there. Um, but also, I think that um, a blended family right now is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, 
we, our family, so um, Abby and I are married now, and we are co-parenting with Craig, and he is an amazing dad, and we've been able to kind of divorce without, I think because, we, we got married because I was pregnant. Mm-hmm. We, all, I mean, we, we were more like we're doing the right thing instead of like you're the right you one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. So we were amazing at family and we were really great co-parents, really. Is what we, we were a team when we were married. There wasn't a lot of like passion there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and because of that, it's turned into like a gift and divorce because I think one of the reasons people look at our family and, and we are doing it. Like we are co-parenting. With yeah. that. We are like, you know – Abby and Craig are coaching together uh-huh. and we're like all doing it and and I think sometimes it makes people feel bad because uh-huh. they're like why can't I do that with my ex like that is in more shame you know and I think it's because when you have a passionless marriage mm. it's easier to have a passionless divorce right wow that's so deep. you can have like a fairy tale marriage or a fairy tale divorce but you can't, <laughs> you can't have both, have both. <laughs> right <laughs> so cuz you know how there's like such a thin line between love and hate yeah. so it's like i get it like if you're deeply in love with somebody and then it ends right that's different than what we're doing right we are just still co-parents <laughs> and you 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 know how to do that we know already. how to do that that's our jam right so having said that you know we still Everybody is living their best life right now. Like our kids now see me happy for the first time. Like they know what a happy woman looks like mm. and they know what I was before, right? Yeah. My girls are learning like what it looks like to live a brave life, you know, um, and be brave with your love and be – so that's beautiful. And Craig even says – we all say it's like Abby wasn't added to our family. It was like she was missing from our family before. Like. Each of our children had a need that Abby has now met, and everybody's become braver and more brilliant. And and our family is exactly as it should be, and all of that is beautiful. And mm-hmm. there are such brutal parts of it. Yeah. I mean, our kids, Abby and I talked about the other day, they say, so am I going to, to daddy's house or am I going to your house? And it hit me the other day that, oh, they don't say home. Oh, wow. Yeah. Like kids from two to – they don't have that like one place that and I don't know why that was so sad for me, but it's just you know, things can be the way they are. Things can be exactly as true and beautiful as they should be. Mm-hmm. And there can still be really hard parts of it. Right. right. Right? Our kids have specific pain that comes from being from a divorced family that I never had. My parents weren't divorced. Mm -hmm. That should not be any different. It shouldn't be different. Like they, that is their journey and that is their pain and that is exactly right. And it's okay to acknowledge that without thinking that the whole journey was a mistake. Right. So that will continue happening. And one of the things that's true about divorced mothers is that we tend to overdo it because we have this guilt. So like our kids, you know, my (laughs) my youngest will be a jerk about something and in my head, I'm like, oh, my God, that's because of the divorce. No, oh, honey, do you want some candy? Let it go. So right. she's going to turn out to be terrible right, because right, right. I'm overcompensating all the time. Like, no, that's not because of the divorce. She was always like that. <laughs> right. I need to address that. Right. Exactly. Yeah. She needs to go to timeout is what she needs. <laughs> so all of that, you know, navigating a big, beautiful, complicated family mm-hmm. is beautiful and brutal. So what would you say, and I'll let this be the last question, since we talk a lot about call or calling, right? Um, and people use the, the term interchangeably, right? Sometimes people say mission or purpose, but just 
a compulsion to do something bigger and bolder and braver in the world. And you don't really know why, but you you know there's something else for you. What would you say to someone who's at the beginning of that journey? Mm-hmm. Whether they're still in the muck and mire of life before honesty and life before truth, mm-hmm. or they're in the middle of that journey and they don't know what the next step is on the other side. What would you say to someone who's like, look, I, there's a call in my life to be bigger and bolder and better than I currently am, than my life currently is, Mm -hmm. what piece of advice would you give them? So my piece of advice for anyone who is thinking big is to beware of the big thinking. So I learned in early sobriety, and this is how I live my life, that God or the universe or whatever this being is that calls us to greatness does it very in very small, specific steps, right? So... If if you wake up in the morning and you hear a voice saying, be great today, be bold, go out, be famous, be whatever, <laughs> beware. If you hear a voice say, make your damn bed, <sighs> that's probably God. <laughs> right? Uh-huh. Because for me, like people say, how do you write a book? I don't know how to write a book. I have no idea how to write a book. All I know is that I know how to sit my butt down in a chair and not move for two hours mm-hmm. and make my fingers move. Mm-hmm. If I do that enough times, magically there's a book. There's a book there. Right. But if I tell myself I need to write a book, this has happened to me for the last six months. I haven't been able to write a thing. Mm-hmm. It's because I've been big thinking and freaking myself out. I don't have to write a book. I don't. Ha- I just have to today mm-hmm. sit my butt in a chair and not move for two hours. And then tomorrow yeah. I have to do the same thing. Right. So when people say to me, how do I live a... Uh, a good life. Well, for God's sakes, nobody knows that. <laughs> you know, what do you even mean? Right. I know how to live a good day. Mm. Right? I know that if I match what I value and I love to the hours in my day, right. that that will be a good day. And then, you know, I think it was Andy Dillard who said, how we spend our lives is how we spend our days. Mm-hmm. So if you want to be great, then do the next small, specific, right thing. Right? And don't skip over the specific, next, small, boring, practical thing mm-hmm. to get to greatness because the way that anybody did anything great is by today doing the little thing that eventual greatness called for. Glennon, thank you. Thank you so much. This was such a great conversation. I loved this hour. Yay, thank you for your work. I appreciate it. I told you it was going to be a good conversation, right? I do not lie. I do not lie. <laughs> Thanks so much to Glennon for finally making this interview happen. We've been trying to coordinate since season one. And for the rest of you, make sure to check out Together Rising and pick up her book, Love Warrior. Not just because I said so, but because Oprah said so. <laughs> this episode was produced by the lovely Melody Rao and published, as always, by my friends at Man Repeller. I'm your host, Erica Williams-Simon. We've only got a few more episodes left this season. I'm going to select some calls for at least one more Ask E segment. So make sure to leave a message at 702-670-CALL with your questions about life and work. And until next week, you know what to do. Keep loving, keep fighting, keep dreaming, and above all, keep answering your call. Peace, y'all. Calling.